So if you've been with us, we've been walking through this series about God and his attributes, some of his core attributes for who he is, what it means for him to be God and for us to be his creation. We kicked off a couple weeks ago talking about how God is eternal. So God, no beginning, no end. The God who was, who is, and who forevermore will be. Doesn't have any start, no vanishing point that way, way beyond our vanishing point that way. He just always has been. And then the next week we talked about how God is all-knowing. There's not a piece of information, not a life skill, a life hack, not anything that God does not already possess within himself. He knows it. You're not going to catch him off guard with anything. He's all-knowing. Thinking, about, thinking on this uh, you know, parent-child Christmas analogy, this morning we're going to be talking about how God is all-sufficient. If you're taking notes, we're going to be talking about how God is all-sufficient. Before we get, go any further, let's go ahead and define sufficiency, because it's a big like, multiple-syllable word that is, can be complex. Um, here's how we're going to define sufficiency this morning. God's sufficiency means this, that Yahweh, Yahweh, it's God's name. That's what we decided in the series, why he comes to Moses and said, hey, this is what you're going to call me. I'm the God who has this story attached to him. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That Yahweh isn't lacking in anything. That he doesn't need anyone or anything outside of himself in order to exist, to survive, or to thrive. I'm going to throw a bunch of E's at you right here, that God is entirely, eternally, essentially self-existent. Read that again so we got it. God is entirely, eternally, essentially self-existent. We're going to do a little blitz through the scriptures real quick and get a survey of some of the places in scripture that talks about this. So um, if you want to follow along, that's awesome, but I'm also just going to be reading these out loud. Uh, What better place to start than page one, sentence one of the Bible? It's a good starting point. Genesis one, I think most of us know it probably. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Theologian Francis Schaeffer, he called this, quote, the most pregnant sentence ever. That in the beginning, God. So before time and space, before the seen things and the unseen things, just God is. Not God plus something, not God And anything else, God plus nothing else, and out of this nothing, he begins to create. And he creates everything that we see and everything that we don't see. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 40 is is, uh, reflecting on this act of God, this aspect of God, and uh, he writes this. I think we've read this a couple times in the past week, so this might sound familiar. Talking about God, Isaiah says, Who has measured the waters of the earth in the hollow of his hand? 
marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of Yahweh or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult or who made him to understand when he made the world? Who taught him the path of justice or knowledge? Who showed him the way of understanding? It's this big string of rhetorical questions, one after the other, all with the answer, nobody. God didn't need anyone or anything outside of himself in his architecting of reality. Did it all himself. So God doesn't need any sort of outside knowledge or insight, but also the scriptures are going to say that God has no material needs for his existence. There's this moment in 1 Kings chapter 8 where King Solomon, son of David, is, uh, has just finished building this ornate, elaborate, huge, glorious temple where the Lord has said he's going to come and he's going to, he's going to take up residence there and he's going to inhabit it and dwell amongst his people. It's going to be awesome. It's been, they've been looking forward to this for like millennia at this point, centuries at this point, and it's finally happened. And Solomon has got all of the people before him, all the people of Israel, and he's praying this blessing over the temple, thanking God, asking him to fill it. And then there's this one moment in the middle of the prayer where he asks this question. He says this, but, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this little house that I have built. Yet have regard for the prayer of your servant and his plea, O Yahweh, my God. Listen to the cry and prayer of your servant before you this day, that your eyes may be open day and night towards this house of which you have said, my name shall dwell there. Solomon knows, he's like, man, this is awesome. This is amazing that the highest, most high God is going to be dwelling here with us in our midst. Like, how does he want to do that? How can he do that? It's crazy. But then he goes, let's not be silly and think that he's, he needs this, that, even, that this could even contain all that he is. Let's not be silly and think that. So God does this. He begins dwelling with his people in their midst in the temple. It's his desire. And one of the ways that he sets up for this to, to happen and happen with perpetuity is that his people are going to bring him sacrifice. It's part of the terms. Like you, if, if I'm going to dwell here and you're going to come before me and I'm going to bless you, the terms I'm laying out are you bring sacrifice and I receive it and we'll make this happen. So the people would bring to God uh, from their flocks, from their herds, they would bring an animal or they would bring uh, a drink offering. I got this big hall of wine this year. We're going to bring the first fruits of this wine. We're going to offer it to the Lord or their grain, anything like that. They would bring it and offer it to the Lord. This was actually very, very, very common in the ancient world. It's how they worshiped. Most of their neighbors surrounding them would have done rituals that look very similar to this. 
bring grain, bring an animal, sacrifice it before their deity. But one of the one of the differences between Israel and the rest of the nations is that a lot of these nations thought that they were actually providing for their God in doing this. That, oh, okay, Baal, okay, Ashtoreth, okay, they are, they're hungry, they need, they lack, so they've chosen us, and we will then provide for their need. They will receive it, and as this kind of quid pro quo kind of a thing, we'll bring to you you receive it and you bless us, whether with like good harvest or you know, victory on the battlefield or something like that. But that's the terms. And in Psalm 50, the Lord sees his people starting to think and behave like this. He sees them bringing their sacrifices and think, okay, we just got to check this box off, appease the Lord, meet his needs, we're going to do whatever the heck we want. He sees them starting to think like this and he rebukes them like this. In Psalm 50, he says, Hear my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your fields, for every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills... I know all of the birds of the air and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and all of its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? No. Offer to me a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Perform your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will glorify me. I don't need you. I don't need you. You need me and I will give. Moving into the New Testament, Paul is uh, in front of the Greeks in Athens and he's been tasked with bringing the gospel to them and trying to convince some. And so he's there and he's, he's surrounded in this area called the Areopagus by all of the Greek temples to their various gods. Ritual sacrifice, it was this whole deal. It was part of their culture. Talking with the Greeks about Jesus, he says this, the God who made the world and everything in it, being king of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Paul in Colossians continues, he's talking about Jesus and who he is as the creator. It says, he is the image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation, For by him, all things were created, heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and get this, in in him, all things hold together. So every molecule, every atom, every Newtonian and quantum law that makes up our fabric of reality and the unseen world, all of it, he is 
dependent on none of it, and all of it is rather held in its being by his will. The scripture teaches that God is completely self-existent and self-sufficient in his being. So that's what we're talking about this morning. No big deal, right? This is super like big picture stuff, real philosophical, real macro, and you know, kind of worshipful to dwell on. Like, oh my gosh, like that, that's God. Like, holy cow. Like to think about God not only existing forever that way and forever that way, but also doing so in a way where he needs nothing. Complete self-sufficiency. It's like we can't even wrap our brains around it. But why does it matter to us? Like, like it's a cool exercise to think about and it kind of stirs us up and inspires us. But when the Bible highlights this aspect of God's character, it's typically not just to inspire worship and, oh my gosh, awe in the creation like us. It's usually most often to remind us something about ourselves that we aren't really like apt to dwell that much on. And we certainly aren't apt to celebrate it or really like lean into it. And that's the fact that you and I are completely, utterly, unchangeably contingent. The opposite of this. We are not sufficient. We are need-based beings. Everything that you and I do involves trying to meet a need that is outside myself. How many of you guys have heard of the rule of three with, when it comes to survival scenarios? Anybody? Rule of three. I've got somebody over there who's heard of it. Okay, so this is actually super helpful if you haven't heard of this because this could literally save your life. Um, write this down if you don't, if you don't mind. Uh, the rule of three with human survival. This is true of most human beings, that the average human being can go three minutes without air, three hours without shelter in a, like an extreme scenario, like extreme cold or extreme heat, three days without water or sleep. After three days of not sleeping, delirium starts to set in and you'll, you'll lose it. You're gone. And then three weeks without food. Three minutes that's all you got. If you're in one of those situations, you got three minutes, three hours, three days, or three weeks. So just follow that in your back pocket for if you find yourself in that scenario. There's definitely some like David Blaine kind of like freak shows that that doesn't really apply to, you know, but in general, it is true of most human beings. Three minutes, three hours, three days, three weeks. There's this guy in the 1940s, this famous psychologist named Abraham Maslow. Uh, and he came up with this thing called Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. It's this really cool deal. In all of his research, he kind of distilled this, this piece of, uh, of information that is, is helpful for understanding what it means to, for human beings to live a full life, right? So it's like, think of the food pyramid. It's like you got your, your base level stuff, and then it builds upwards. That's what it is, but for human well-being, so at the top of it, like the pinnacle of the pyramid is that self-actualization, right? That's like what we're all going for. Like I'm the fully realized version of who I am made to be, right? That's the pinnacle. 
And right below that are like the more intangible things that we know and love and need, like friendship, self-esteem, purpose, intimacy. But the base layers, like the bottom of the pyramid, the things that you absolutely need to have any shot at those other things, Maslow, in all of his brilliance, his research came up with this, that you need food, water, shelter, air, and safety. It's the base level thing. This is a brilliant, brilliant psychologist, and his research is basically, you got to use air. You have to use the air with your lungs, and you have to eat food. But it's true, right? If I, if I don't have any of those things, I have no shot of deep friendship and good community and good self-esteem if I'm worrying about, I don't know what I'm going to eat today. I don't know if I can breathe. Like, those are the base level needs. And yours and my whole reality every day, whether or not we're super aware of it, is based on, centered on making sure that these needs are met or continue to stay met. It's kind of, on one level, it's kind of obvious, right? Like, you guys are probably not looking at me going, like, I really learned something today. To need, to be human is to need. Yeah, like, duh, of course. But if you think about it, like, neediness, dependence, non-self-sufficiency, those aren't really states of being that we, like, prize or celebrate, are they? No, there's something to be gotten through. We tend to celebrate when people are seemingly self-supplying, like as self-supplying as possible, right? Like I feel good about myself the more that I can go, no, I'm good. No, my, my brother, he's a needy person, but me, I'm good. I've got the job. I've got the thing. I'm pretty self-reliant. And that's something that we kind of hang our hat on. I believe that the scripture teaches that God's all-sufficiency and our complete need are actually his perfect design, and they fit perfectly together. Said another way that God loves that we need, and he designed us to need because he loves being a need meter. It's how he, he wove it into the fabric of reality. God loves that we need, and he loves being a need meter. Throughout the scripture, you'll see this. It's, it's so cool. Bread is this constantly used image to talk about sufficiency and provision. We start to see it in Exodus. In Exodus, God comes down. He calls Moses. And he says, hey, I'm going to deliver my people out of 400 years of slavery in Egypt. You're going to do it. Um, you're going to deliver them out. They're going to meet me here in the wilderness at the mountain. And then I'm going to lead them into a land that is all their own, and I will bless them there. That's what's going to happen. And he does it. He comes down. He delivers them. He brings these judgments on their oppressors in Egypt. And with a mighty hand, he delivers them out through the sea. It's miraculous. It's amazing. And genuinely, two days later, the people are grumbling because they're hungry. Like they're literally sitting in the desert, having just had the ocean parted for them, going, Egypt though? 
Egypt was Egypt wasn't great, okay? Egypt, I mean, we had slavery and we got like whipped and stuff, and it was a hard life, but we had food. Like, and then they start to glorify too. They're like, we didn't just have food, we had pots of meat and bread and all this. It was good. They start to go, two, two dates. They start to go, like, maybe we need to go back. So God comes to Moses and and he says this. He says, okay, Moses, here's what I'm going to do. To show my people how aware of their basic needs I am, how able to provide for these I am at all times, I am literally going to rain bread down from heaven on them every day. Miraculous bread from heaven. It's going to fall from the sky. They're going to go out. They're going to gather it. They're going to eat everything they need that day. The rest of it's going to go bad. They're going to go to sleep. And guess what? Tomorrow, I'm going to do it again. And then tomorrow, I'm going to do it again. Over and over, he does this for 40 years, day in, day out, without fail, provides bread for his people. In the same season of Israel's history, Exodus 24 says, you know, God has taken them out of the land. He's brought them into the wilderness. He's like, okay, I'm going to provide for your needs. Don't worry about it. He brings them to the mountain where they're going to meet with him. They're going to see their God. And he actually calls the, the elders of Israel up the mountain. He says, I want to meet with the elders of Israel. So Moses and the elders, they go halfway up the mountain, and it's this really cool scene where they sit at the feet of God, and they can't even describe it. Like, if you read Exodus, it says that they're like, it's like, the appearance was like, it was like sapphire, like, but, but it was also completely clear, uh, and it, it was kind of like the sky. Like, if you can envision, like, sapphire, but clear, but also the sky, and it was awesome. That was it. They can't even describe it. It's amazing. They're in his presence. And why does he call them up there? This is important to pay attention to. Why does he call, does he call the elders of Israel up? I want to have words with the elders of Israel. I want to tell them, tell them some things. I want to rebuke them. I want to give them some instruction. No, it says that he calls them up there and they share a meal together. They eat in the presence of God at his footstool. They just share a meal, break bread together. Elders go back down, and this next scene, Moses gets invited all the way to the top of the mountain. The glory of God has come down. It is engulfing the mountain. It's shaking everything, terrifying the people. Moses is called up into this. 40 days and 40 nights, he's up there. Exodus 34, 27 is going to say that during this 40 days, he neither ate bread nor drank water. Rule of three, how many days can you go sans water? Three days. So it begs the question, how how is he doing up there? How did he do that? And then not only that, but at the end of the 40 days, he doesn't come like, crawling down the mountain, just completely gaunt, falling apart. No, he walks down strong, face glowing, literally hauling two enormous tablets of stone. He comes down in strength, 
the later rabbis in Israel's history are going to be reflecting back on that, going like, how did that happen? 40 days, 40 nights, no water, no food. And they're going to say, the conclusion they're going to come to is that Moses was just a month and a half in the immediate, unfiltered presence of the all-sufficient one. So needs aren't really a thing. When he is that close, he is, by his very nature and presence, sustained. So he comes down continues to lead the people. And at the end of this season in the wilderness, 40 years, God faithfully raining bread down on them every day. He's about to lead them into the land. And God says, before you go in, he gives them this, this design for this thing called the Ark of the Covenant. And he is going to come and dwell on this ark. And it's going to be like this mobile temple thing that's going to move with them through the land. He said, I'm going to dwell on this ark in the ark I want you to put a few things so that you can remember your time in the wilderness. And one of the things that he has them put in the ark, he says, go out on this final day, gather bread, the manna from the ground, put it in a jar and put it in the ark. Put it in the ark and remember, because what's going to happen is you guys are going to go into the land. I'm going to plant you. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to bring everything that I have said I will bring. I will put you there. You will begin to see the practices of the nations around you, the broken rituals that they use to try to twist the arm of their God to give them good things, and you're going to envy them. You're going to want to do what they do, and in that day, remember that Yahweh is your God. He is your provider. As he provided for you in the wilderness, so will he provide for you in the land as long as you stay close to him. It's bread. It's this image. Jesus comes along in the New Testament right at the start of his ministry, filled with the Spirit, baptized by John. Heavens open up, this voice from from heaven, the father goes, this is my son. This is the beloved. I I am well pleased with him. And he's filled with the spirit. And then it says that immediately after this, the spirit that was just given him drives him out where? To the wilderness. He is driven out into the wilderness to fast, to pray, to be tested. And lo and behold, what does his first test have to do with? bread. The enemy comes to him in the same way. He goes, beloved son of God, like the beloved one. Like if, I mean, surely if you were the beloved of God, you wouldn't be hungering like this. I mean, is that how God treats his chosen? To let them hunger? And beyond that, I mean, like you, you know that you have it within you to just take these rocks and, and turn it into bread. Provide for yourself. Like, just be done with it. Jesus comes back. He quotes Deuteronomy 8. He says, Satan, no. He said, it is written in Deuteronomy 8, Yahweh let his people hunger and he fed them so that they may see that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from his mouth. 
Said another way, Jesus is like, hey, look, I am hungry, but there is something more fundamental to my existence and my mission right now than food, and that's my father. If I don't have bread right now, it's because he has not deemed that it is necessary yet. He passes the test and the, the rest of the test, and guess what happens? There's something we glaze over. Guess what happens at the end of that? It says at the end of it, when Satan departs from him, angels from heaven come and are ministering to him. 40 days in the wilderness, no food. What, they're ministering to his needs. What are his needs? Food. He's hungry. He gets to the end of the 40 days, and sure enough, heaven rains bread down on him. He didn't clutch at it himself. Then in his ministry itself, like two of, arguably two of his most famous miracles for a crowd of 5,000 and a crowd of 4,000, he multiplies these small amounts of fish and what? Bread. The gospel writers in all the accounts are very intentional to let you know that in the first instance, there were seven baskets left over. And then in the second instance, there were 12 baskets left over. They're very distinct to mention that, you know, in Judaism, these are both important numbers. Seven signifies completeness. In seven days, God created the heavens and the earth, and it was done. And 12, there's 12 tribes of Israel, every single tribe accounted for. They are provided for. They have an overabundance in complete measure. The gospel authors are so like, importantly note that. And then in Matthew 16, right after this, Jesus is hanging out with his disciples, teaching them just like he always does. And he's speaking in a metaphor. He, he does that a lot. He's talking in a metaphor, and he goes, hey, look, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they, they teach a lot, but beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the disciples, in all of their brilliance, go, leaven, leaven, like bread. Oh, my God, Jesus is hungry. Jesus is hungry. That's what it is. And they don't have any food, so they're scared. So they start scrambling around. We got to get some food for Jesus because he wants bread. And Jesus sees it. And in this moment, he actually almost gets mad at them. And he goes, look, do you not remember what just happened? The crowds, the 5,000, the 4,000, I multiplied it. Do you not remember how many baskets were left over? How is it that you fail to realize that I am not worried about bread? Neither should you be. This other episode that's right at the, on the back end of that, after he's fed these crowds, go ahead if you have your Bible, turn to John 6, starting in verse 25. I want us to see this together. So Jesus feeds these crowds. He has this interaction with his disciples and the scripture is going to say that one of these crowds actually like does this end run around the entire Sea of Galilee and meets him on the other side. And that's the scene we walk, walk in on here in John. It's John 6, starting in verse 25. It says this, when the crowd found him on the other side of the sea, they said, Rabbi, when did you come over here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. 
Do not work for the food that perishes. Work for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And these crowds, they said to him, okay, okay, these works, what must we be doing to be doing the work of God? Jesus answers them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, this is where they get super cheeky. Okay, the, what, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? He's just like ignore the fact that he just fed 5,000 people. Just get that out of there. What work do you do that we may see and believe? But then they actually kind of tip their hand at what they're actually there for. They say, what work do you perform? Oh, I've, I've got a good idea. Uh, so our fathers, they ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So the, the bread, like the bread thing, why don't we do that again? That was, if you do that, I mean, maybe like round two, maybe first time's a fluke. Second time you do it again, maybe we'll believe. Like, do, do the bread thing. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus not pulling any punches anymore. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Just like with the Israelites in the wilderness, this provision of bread in Jesus's mind was just this sign that is meant to point them to a bigger reality about their God and his ability to meet needs bigger than their need for food. As present and as strong as that seems right now, you have bigger needs than that. And this is a sign that I am here to meet those. You see, in a couple years, Jesus' ministry is going to end in Jerusalem. On one Passover evening, uh, he's going to be in a room around a table with all his disciples, his closest friends, and they're going to be eating the Passover meal that they have eaten every year since they were little kids. Every year. Do Passover. Eat the bread. Remember it's this meal that looks back on their slavery in Egypt and how God delivered them and met them. And it remembers that. But it also is this meal that looks forward to this day where God promised that he's going to send another deliverer like Moses, who he's going to show up and he's actually going to deliver them and all people out of the spiritual bondage and brokenness that they even then still found themselves in. Jesus on that night, he's going to take the unleavened Passover bread they've eaten for centuries, genuinely, hundreds and hundreds of years. He's going to take it, he's going to break it, and he'll give it to each of them. And he says this, he says, take it, eat it, this bread, this sustenance, this provision this is my body. It's given for you. 
and he'll be betrayed. He'll be delivered over to a bunch of wicked men. They're going to put him on a sham trial. They're going to accuse him falsely. They're going to convict him for nothing. They're going to scourge him. He's going to have his body broken and nailed to a piece of wood where after several hours of suffocating, his body will finally give out and he'll breathe his last. Truly, truly, I say to you, my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Humans, man, we're these just need-based creatures. We just like show up on the scene just needing all of these things, like tangible and intangible. It's like these gas tanks. Like I didn't, I didn't ask this morning to wake up and be hungry. It just happened. We show up on the scene and like we, we have all these desires and as we go through our lives, it's like, it's like a car, right? We've got the gas tank on full. And as we go, as we expend ourselves, that starts to go down more towards empty. And just like my car, my actual car, as that gauge starts to lean more towards empty, there's a lot of different liquids that I can choose to cram in that engine to get that gauge to read full. It doesn't know what I'm putting in there. It's just a pressure sensor back there. It doesn't know if that's gas or if that's water, apple juice, jello, like it doesn't know. You can put whatever in there and that thing will say full, but there's one substance that will make that read full and will actually make my car move. We do this with our lives. There's a lot that I can cram into my life to make that gauge look like it's full. A lot of it's really good stuff. More money, better diet, better job, good relationship, better community group. There's a lot of things aching within me that say I need to be filled, that I can take and grab and cram in there. And a lot of them are good, but all of them are peripheral. They're not the point. Jesus says, do not labor for the food that perishes. Labor for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. You don't have to convince me. You don't have to twist my arm. The Son of Man will give it to you. In the rest of the New Testament, nobody really gets this better than the Apostle Paul. I mean, if you look at Paul's life, there are very few men who have license to worry about their physical and psychological well-being than Paul, okay? He is constantly, just read the book of Acts, constantly arrested, beaten, mocked, like made fun of, publicly ridiculed, run out of town. He's actually shipwrecked twice. And the second time, after he survives the shipwreck, he's bitten by a poisonous snake on the island that he gets shipwrecked on. It's insane. That actually happens. It's Acts 28. Look it up. So that's Paul, and all of this is for the sake of going city to city in the ancient world, sharing the news of who Jesus is and what he just did. And in all of it, he over and over sees the Lord not only save him, uphold his life, but also provide for his every need in every city that he goes to as he works to accomplish this mission that he's been called to. That Paul 
Here's what he has to say, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. He's writing about this, this affliction he has. He calls it his thorn in the flesh. Scholars are kind of all over the place on what it is. It could be a physical affliction, something with his eyes. It could be spiritual. We don't know, but here's what he says about it. Paul says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Messiah Jesus may rest on me. For the sake of Messiah, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. Philippians 4.13, it's your classic Christian coffee cup mug. Coffee mug first. That's what I meant to say. Coffee cup mug. That's a, that's a next level kind of coffee container. Paul in Philippians, he's saying this, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. See, over and over, Paul sees in his life that when he is lined up right in the center of God's will for him, walking in obedience, all of his hardships and his needs become this constant stage for God to display just how invested in Paul he is, just how able he is to provide, and just how faithful he is to do it over and over and over and over again. And it's not just so Paul can like survive and be happy and live a good life and maybe retire before 65, play a little golf on the way out before he hangs his hat up and, and calls it done. No, it's part of his calling Paul upward into this enormous story that is so much bigger than his life and is going to go on so much further than his 70 years. The Lord's provision is for that. And Paul thinks that Jesus died so that he could bring him into this new life. And it's available for me and you and him today as well. Me and you and Jesus as well. So this morning, we're gonna take communion together and I'm gonna have the worship team come back up and start to, to lead us into that time. And we're gonna actually sit here this morning. This is so, this like blows my mind every time we get to do it. We're gonna sit here this morning an actual two millennia from this moment, 2,000 years. It's enormous, it's ridiculous. You can't even wrap your head around that. We're gonna sit here in these seats 2,000 years later and we're gonna take bread and we're gonna take the cup just like he told us to and we're gonna proclaim the same thing together that we are not sufficient. We're not enough. We're never made to be. But the, the holy, holy, sufficient God is not just this idea for us to be wowed by, but rather he's our father, our provider, and that in Jesus, he has provided 
everything we need for life with him. Everything. Eternity with him. Not just like the, hey, I'm floating on clouds, playing a little harp for God forever. No, like ruling on a new heavens and new earth, that kind of stuff provided for us in Jesus. If he's got that covered, how much more is he going to take care of that thing that you were worried about right now in your life? It's small. It feels huge right now. It's so small compared to what he's already done. Seek first the kingdom, everything else added. You'll see it. You'll see it added in time. We're going to dwell on that this morning, and that's what we're, we're celebrating together as we take the bread and the cup. Admittedly, the bread back then was probably so much better than the bread that you're going to eat this morning. It's this thin little wafer thing, and I don't know if you can even call it bread, but the idea is the same. We celebrate, we take it together, and we remember. In Jesus, we have everything we need. So I'm going to pray, uh, and then when I'm done, I'm going to ask you guys to stand, file towards the center, get communion. It's on any of the tables in the corner of the room. Come back to your seat and take it in your own time while we get led in worship together. So let's pray. Father, Father, you're a provider. You have made us to be dependent creatures and that that's not like a bad buzzword. It's your good design, Father, that when we need, there's this piece of you in your heart that comes alive because you love to showcase how good you are at sustaining your creation. How in tune you are with our needs, God. And I pray that that would soak over us today. Bless us, Father, with an awareness of your closeness to our need, your ability to provide for it, and your eagerness to do so, God. We love you. We worship you. We thank you for the body of Jesus. That you give us true bread from heaven, bread that doesn't spoil, bread that endures to eternal life. I pray that we would worship him this morning as we take this together. We love you. And we thank you. Amen.